To episode 90 of the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. I'm Jason Collette, joined once again by Eno Saris. Good morning, Eno. Well, not so good for you. I'm sorry to hear that you're so sick. Yeah, folks, get your flu shots. Don't. I, I usually bypass the flu shot because I know it's a limited quantity in my area here in Florida, so I usually let other people get it. But man, it's kicking my butt today. I have it, that's why we're a little delayed. We're supposed to obviously record Tuesdays and Thursdays. Did not happen on Tuesday because I had uh, wasn't good. Today's not much better, but I didn't want to go a full week. So we're going to sweat this one out and get through talking about the Giants and the Indians today before we move on to the next two teams on the list uh, later this week, which would be the Mariners and the Marlins. Let's jump right into it with the Giants uh, and talk about maybe somebody I think may be the most valuable fantasy asset on this team in 2014. And that's Brandon Belt. You know, came back last year, 60 extra base hits, improved his strikeout rate for a third season. He's somebody that I took in, in the industry mock that we've mentioned a few times that I'm doing. Brandon Belt was the first baseman that I picked, and I ended up picking him at pick 115 in this draft. What are your thoughts on Brandon Belt for 2014? He's a, he's a really interesting cat. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of guys uh, about a lot of people around uh, the team and, and uh, you know, in the media that cover him uh, about Brandon Belt. He's one of the most uh, talked about guys uh, on the on the Giants. And, you know, there are more than a couple of guys who think that this year's entire Giants season depends uh, on a breakout from him because – they look across the landscape of that team and just see a team that needs someone to really step forward to join Buster Posey in the middle of that lineup. Um, and I think that there was a lot of pessimism before this year with Brandon Belt because he had shown a reluctance to change. Um, and there were uh, a couple things here or there that um, that uh, there were, you know, I've, I've heard anecdotes of him um you know, not wanting to change his approach at the plate. And, you know, there's people talking about the Giants wanting him to be less patient and be a little bit more aggressive. That was the first um, thing that popped up. And um, and it, he seems to have, you know, worked on that a little bit. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, his ability to, to hit balls on the inner half of the plate um, and to turn on balls and to really show his power. Um, and one of the things that, um, that really sticks out with him is that this year he finally made a change to his, his grip. Um, and he, uh, he, he did it after talking to Don Brown or actually it's after his hitting coach, after Hensley Mullins, um, Bam Bam talked to Don Brown at the all-star game and then went and, and told Brandon Belt, Hey, here's this guy who was a star coming up. Um, had great minor league numbers, struggled for a while at the major league level, and finally made this change. He has a similar swing to you. He's a lefty, and this change really worked out for him this year. Uh, why don't you consider it? So uh, in the second half, Brandon Belt had a really great second half, and he was doing it with um, with a little change of his grip and a little bit of his of his swing in terms of um, you know getting to balls inside. And 
you know, I do think that helped him get to where he was. I just wonder for myself if there's a lot of projection left. Yeah, it's kind of it when you point out the inner half stuff, and I'm looking at his numbers, inner half versus outer half, it is rather astounding how much of his damage he does on pitches on the outer half. And, and how, you know, last year on pitches on the inner half, he hit 241 with a 438 slugging percentage. Not good. And eight of, he had eight home runs on the inner half last year. But you look, compare that to what he did in the outer half. Uh, outer half hit 320, slug 510. The home runs were same, nine on the outer half, eight on the inner half, but his numbers are just so much better when he's able to get his arms extended and, and, and do what he does and use all fields. I mean, a lot of people may think of him as, as some kind of uh, pull hitter, but this is a guy that's, uh, unlike a lot of first basemen, is definitely willing to use all parts of the field. Yeah, and I think it hurts him a little bit because, um, you know, not only is that park big, but one of the few places where a lefty can um, can demonstrate um, nice power or take advantage of the park is right down the line. I mean, um, you know, the splash hits thing, if you saw Barry, Barry would just whip that bat around and and just scream balls down the line and out of the park. And down the line, it's a, it's a reasonable park. It's where you go to sort of right center uh, that you get in trouble. That's Triple's Alley. Um, but uh, you can still get hits there. You know, I, I don't think that uh, anybody should be afraid of right center to the point where they never hit it down the line, um, you know, down the line in right field. Because if that's why he, if he changed it at all, I think he's just a guy who likes to spray to all fields and he's a little bit slow on the inner half and he's had this grip in the past. He really had a weird grip. It was kind of, it was uh, a little too hard, it was too intense, and it kind of, um, held it in just a really weird way. So I think the grip will, will change things, will open up the inner half for him a little bit. Um, and I'd like to see some of the splits on that stuff uh, for first half, second half, even though, you know, that's dicing the, 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 the data some. He's, you know, the year before, his Babbitt took off in the second half after he, you know, decided that, you know, uh, he was going to kind of hit more ground balls. And that, that, that actually worked out for him. So, um you know, I think he's he's a guy who doesn't want to adjust very much, but uh, the league is a league of adjustments. And, um, you know, the grip thing makes me think that he can make some adjustments this year. I just I looked at his batted ball distances and he's made incremental improvements, 270, 278, 284. But his last year, uh, that 284 number is, you know, uh, still only um, – forget what it is but like a hundredth in the league or something so he's uh yeah 130th in the league so he's not he's just around average in terms of homers and and um and fly balls i mean it's he's there with austin jackson jason kubel last year um neil walker you know Betancourt, justin turner so that's not great company yeah well what's amazing is he's right ahead of, of dominic brown so it, it's not it's not a, a it's not a distance that can't produce twenty twenty five homers. It's just a distance that I don't think will produce thirty. So I think the upper bound for me is you know twenty two twenty three homers next year. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And looking, I looked up his first and second half splits on the inner half. First half uh, hit two twenty three, slug four forty six. Second half hit two sixty four, slug four twenty nine. It's just really unusual. When you think of lefties, everybody doesn't want to pitch lefties down and in. Uh, and it's for some reason, everybody wants to pitch Brandon Belt down and in because it's just not <laughs> something he's done a lot with. 
let's shift over to the second base and look at uh, Father Time and Marco Scudero. Uh, I, I, I always, I can't forget the fact that the Rockies let him go. You know, he couldn't hit in Colorado, so it's like, okay, if you can't hit in Colorado, where are you going to hit? The Giants pick him up, either it was a trade or he had been DFF. I forget the exact transaction, but Scudero has been a consistent hitter. That comes with age, but a consistent, strong batting average for a middle infielder. And here we are, age 38, he's you know still doing it. Is he, even though he's pretty much a one-category guy, because it's just pretty much about hits and, and maybe runs for him, uh, where he gets where he gets his uh, where he does his damage is uh, for batting average and runs. Is this a guy that you can draft in a mixed league? Or are we getting to the point where it's time to just consider him an NL only guy? Um, you know he's a he's got an elite skill. It's, he's kind of a one tool guy, um, but that one tool is elite. I mean, we he leads the the majors in contact rate among qualified batters the yes. last five years. So. Yep. Yeah, so you know, a guy that puts that many balls into play. If I if I was, uh, you know, the Rockies, I probably would have thought, you know, maybe we should just wait for a couple more balls in play. You know, <laughs> you would think. I mean, my fear with him is his run score went from eighty seven to fifty seven last year, and that's obviously dependent upon who's in the lineup driving him. And the, and the Giants definitely had their issues offensively last year. But for a 30-run drop, and again, we, we know how guys age. We're talking about a guy who is currently 38 years old, uh, turned 38 uh, just after the season ended, so he's playing his age 38 year. We know he's losing foot speed, and that's my concern. Is I usually would Marco Scudero would be an ideal guy for a middle infield spot if you wanted to be cheap in a mixed league because you know he's going to hit for average and he would score runs because going – you know, from 2009 to 2012, 100 runs, 92 runs, 59 that bad year in Boston, and then 87 uh, as he split time between Colorado and San Francisco. But then last year, just 57 runs. Uh, and that concerns me because if you're going to carry a one-category pony in a mixed league, he's got to be really, really good at that one category. And batting average isn't that category that I care about that much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the one nice thing about it is that the batting average around the league is going down. So, you know, with batting average around the league down to 250, a 300 batting average is pretty valuable. And it's it's not a 300 batting average uh, with a lot of patience or strikeouts. So, you know, it's a 300 batting average with a lot of hits. So um, that can be useful. Uh, I think that the 57 uh, runs batted in was a little bit about the fact that he um, – uh, only managed 550 plate appearances. Also, the team sucked. Um, so I think that um, there's definitely some bounce back ability, and most of the, uh, or at least Steamer has him projected into about 70 runs. Um, you know, with those Steamer values, uh, I uh, my first run of the values, um, you know, coming out of those Steamer projections has uh, Scudero at uh, above replacement in a, in a uh, mixed league. So uh, about of a two dollar player, but that's the kind of player that uh, is barely a starter. I mean, um, a $2, you know, you're going to buy him for a dollar, mm-hmm. and, and that means at middle infield. I mean, it's definitely not a starting second baseman. Right. Um, continuing our shift around the diamond, Pablo Sandoval, the, the, uh, a couple of things in, in play here. He's apparently lost half a human being. They say he's in the best shape of his life. Uh, he's dropped 30, 35 pounds. So he's no longer pear-shaped. He's actually looks like an athlete this year. Uh, he's also turning 27, believe it or not. So we have the the whole mythical age 27 theory 
um, which is bunk, but a lot of people you'll still see it in a lot of places being reported as something worth of value. Uh, but that's coming into play. What concerns me in looking at Sandoval, that's great that he's losing the weight because he's been losing production. You looked at it, his weighted on base average has dropped each of the past three seasons. That goes along with his slugging percentage. It goes along with his on-base percentage, his batting average. I see a lot of stuff in decline here. doesn't mean he can't turn around, but that's a lot of stuff in decline. And I mean, to me, that's concerning. If we go ahead and look, you know, pull up his ADP value and, and play the three-ahead, three-behind game with him, you know, Sandoval is currently going, as the site renders itself here, Sandoval is going a 13th off the board at 158. Uh, Chase Headley, Brett Laurie, Aramis Ramirez ahead of him. Nolan Arenado, Todd Frazier, and Will Middlebrooks behind him. Your thoughts on Sandoval? Um, I wouldn't take any of the guys behind him ahead of him. Um, Agreed. Just with that uh, that group. Um, would I take him much higher? I don't know. I mean, the thing that's most concerning to me is actually the plate appearances. Um, the last three years, 466, 442, 584. Um, that's, that's worrisome because past DL um, time projects into future DL time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did some research that showed that heavier players uh, hit the DL more often. Um, so... You know what you've got is a guy that has two warning signs for for uh, uh, for for missing time this year, and you know Steamer projects him into 22 homers and 289 batting average, but it also projects him into 651 plate appearances, which would be a career high. Yeah, he was uh, 633 in 2009. That was his previous career high. Yeah, and that was a long time ago. So I I don't know about that. Uh, it might be uh, Steamer might have a thing in there. Uh, for age, maybe their peak age is uh, 27, 28, and he's he's only going to turn 28 in August this year. So um, he is in a peak age. Uh, and, you know, people like to say that the uh, contract year phenomenon is not a phenomenon, but there are a couple things uh, that do happen. Is I think players mostly uh, play through pain and, and put up more plate appearances. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's from what I've seen in the research, that, that holds true. And – you know, for a lot of people saying that, um, you know, players play poorly the, the year after they sign their contract, I mean, those players are also a year older, and free agency happens to happen right around 28, 29, 30. So um, anything, any study that says that, you know, free agents play poorly in the year after they sign a, uh, you know, a contract has to do something about that age component because, you know, that's definitely a, a confounding factor in that research. So I'll just say... Uh, I'm actually uh, a little bit uh, a little bit excited for Pablo. Um, he said in the past that for some reason 28 was the, the time he was going to get his life together and and you know get uh, get fit. And I I don't know if that had to do with oh that's when he's a free agent, but he also said something about you know I can do what I want when I'm young and you know 28 will mean that I have to start thinking about my weight and my future and my health. So I mean this isn't the first time that he's dropped a bunch of weight either. I mean there was a couple of years ago where they said he was in really good shape and that he put it back on. It, to me this is a guy that just it seems like he could drop 30 as quickly as he could put back on 30 pounds and as you said the thing that concerns me more is the the previous injuries as you said good indicator of future injuries and that's what I have a tough time overlooking. I agree with you that I wouldn't take any of the guys behind him that we mentioned, I also wouldn't take him ahead of Chase Headley, Brett Laurie, Aramis Ramirez. I, I I like those three better. So I think Sandoval's properly placed in the depth chart of third well, baseman. Myself. Well, you know, Ramirez is uh, Ramirez has the same injury concerns and is much older. 
Um, so I'm not so sure about Ramirez, actually. I mean, for uh, me, I think he's been te- I think he's been very consistent in that Aramis usually stinks in April and then rocks it for May first on. He's always been one of those guys I let somebody else draft. And then in April, when somebody's ready to hit the panic button, I'm like, hey, what do you want for him? Because you look at the last, you know, if we're looking at the last three years of what Aramis has done, he's at 299, 363, 511. And he's last year, he played in 149 games in 2011, 2012, and then last year missed a bunch of time. So two of the three years had over 620 plate appearances. I, again, April's always bad for him, but for whatever reason, May 1st on, the dude rocks it. Uh, I think that's why I think there's more consistency. I, there is a little bit more risk because of the age, but I think I have more faith also, in what, what Aramis has done to date. He's 35, so there's a seven-year age difference. But he's also in a contract surgery. year, too. Knee surgery. Yeah. I mean, he had an actual surgery. Uh, it's hard to compare. I mean, knee surgery versus uh, fatitis. Yeah. Uh, but uh, sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I mean it's a, it's a struggle for him. Obviously, I don't I don't like to laugh at people for their struggles. But uh, you know, in my league, he got taken ahead of Kyle Seager. Wow! Uh, in, in the mock that I did, uh, he got taken ahead of Kyle Seager. He did, uh, way ahead of Aramis, ahead of Brett Lowry, um, ahead of Chase Headley. Uh, I would have taken him maybe thirty picks lower, around where he went one hundred and three, and Aramis went one hundred and thirty four. He went one sixty one in mine. So if if, the, if you're looking at both of them uh, at 130, then just pick the guy you like. I, I think that's that's where they belong in the 10th round. Aramis, Pablo, they have enough upside to be way better than that. Um, then and you'll be happy with the the investment you put in, and, and it's just your personal preference. What you know whether you are more worried about his knee or Pablo's weight. But in terms of like Kyle Seeger, Brett Lowry, these guys are younger. They're pre-peak for the most part. Um, they've shown power and speed, right? Um, they're, they're just, uh, better across the board you know, better upside across the board. Chase Headley, you know, okay, maybe you can put him in that mix, but, um, if he gets traded out of San Diego, which is a total possibility, then his stock goes way up. And even if he doesn't, you know, I think, you know, he's, a, he's like a Kyle Seeger light 270, 15, 15. I mean, Pablo has had seasons where he, only put up 15 homers and he never going to steal 15 bases. Yeah. It, with Brett Larry, what I'll add is in my local league, I traded him straight up for, uh, I traded for him, gave up John Lester to get Larry. They were, they were similar prices. I just had some pitching. I needed some third baseman. For me, what I like about Larry, he's entering this third full season and he's like gone into this where people were drafting him. Now they're saying, okay, this kid's a bust. That's what I like to go after these players. The players that have disappointed you for two years, if you look back over Larry's numbers over the last two years, he's disappointed. So I'm willing to take another chance on this guy to see what he could do now that he's coming into his third full season. He showed some growth a little bit last year uh, towards the end of the season. I liked what I saw, and I think it's a nice buying opportunity. When you compared what you were paying for Brett Larry last year, I believe he went $25, $26 in tout wars. You know, people were still trying to pay for that double-double production, and it just didn't happen. I think there's some value there if you can get him late enough. And I want to say in my uh, in my draft, Laurie went 150. He went at the end of the 10th round to our friend Paul Sporer, uh, who's also high on him. But that's kind of where, where Laurie's valued. And we mentioned earlier where Pablo Sandoval, when he went 161, Aramis went 128. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big Ram, uh, a Lowry fan this year, um, and I, I don't think that any of his health issues have, have uh, risen to the level of uh, 
of chronic, uh, which I would say is uh, probably the case for Pablo. So, right. Um, you know, take the take the younger guys over over Pablo and Aramis. But if you want to wait until ninth, tenth round to get your third baseman, um, you know, I think those guys will still be there, and I think there are decent values there. Right. Let's move out to the outfield because this outfield really intrigues me because we have two guys that are looking to bounce back from bad years, uh, either health-wise or performance-wise. We have one guy coming off a, a, basically a career year uh, out of nowhere. Let's start with one of the disappointments, Michael Morse. They're going to put him out in left field. Uh, I think that's – Michael Morse is a DH, let's be honest. He's not an outfielder, but he's going to have to play the outfield in San Francisco. When I saw this guy play last year, uh, especially towards the end with Baltimore – he looked done for. I don't know if it's you know, the bat speed just didn't look the same. Michael, you think back to Michael Morse two years ago when he was you know, hit thirty one home runs. Yes, he's never been a selective guy at the plate. He's a free swinger, but you know he used to instill some fear in you when you when you saw him at the at the plate last year. It just didn't look the same. He looked done for in the second half. Every time I saw him play, it just it looked worse and worse. The bat looked slow to me, um, so I was a bit surprised at San Francisco is going to gave them the major league contract that they did and is going to play him in left field. Personally, I don't like it. If he could have been a DH and a better situation, I would have liked Morse, but seeing what I saw last year and the fact he's going to play the outfield full time, he's a guy that it's on my avoid list for this for this year. Yeah. I mean, and it, it it's a little bit weird. Uh, it speaks to, um, you know, we're still trying to figure out how exactly to use batted ball distance. Cause he had a better batted ball distance than, than Brandon Belt when he made uh, contact last year, almost 290. So um, what, what, we're always trying to figure out how to use that better. But, um, you know, I think they, you know, I think the, the Giants have shown in the past that they like veterans um, and uh, they like proven track records. And, uh, you know, for what you can say, Morse does have that. Um, it, you know, proven track records, a three-year stretch, uh, two-and-a-half-year stretch. Um, the, I think the good fallback plan in real life baseball is the fact that, uh, Blanco, uh, you know, provides the opportunity for a, a lefty righty platoon, um, and an offense defense platoon because Blanco is a really good defender, has patience and against, uh, against right-handers is, is a decent player. Um, and he's been a two win player for the last three years. So, you know, as much as they said to everyone, you know, Morse is our starting left fielder. I don't think that they, you know, especially on a one-year deal, that they're going to uh, stick with him too long through a, a terrible April and May. Uh, and you may see him just platoon batting um, uh, against lefties, you know, later on. So, uh, and, and that team could use uh, a right-handed bat off the bench uh, that can play first um, and spell uh, Brandon Belt sometimes um, or play in the outfield. So, I think for them, the worst case scenario is, oh, we have a good bench bat that fits our needs. And the best case scenario is we have a, a powerful left fielder where we kind of need one. Um, in terms of, you know, fantasy, that that floor is real low. You know, yes. uh, a, a guy who's going to come in and hit against lefties every once in a while is not someone you want on your team. And They're paying them $6 million, right? Five, six million bucks for this? Yeah. I mean that's okay for a team like the Giants, even if he ends up in a in a in a part time role. I mean they they can they can laugh that off in a in a one year deal. So um, I don't know. It, it, in real life, I don't hate it as much as in fantasy. In fantasy, the he's proven that his um, I think he's proven over the last two years that 
it's going to come with injury. And if it doesn't come with plus uh, batted ball luck, um, it's going to come with a bad batting average. And, you know, even a steamer projection that seems very positive, 618 plate appearances, 25 homers, 259 batting average. Wow. You know, first of all, that 618 plate appearance is never going to happen because it has never happened uh, for him. And um, even if he was a full-timer, he would get pulled for defense late in games uh, for Blanco. Right. So uh, I think his ceiling is probably 500 plate appearances. I mean, his, his ceiling ever was 575, so uh, he's three years older. So I, I'd say his ceiling is 500 plate appearances. you got to dock uh, that projection then to 259.20 home. Um, and you're going to, you're going to, you're, how much are you going to spend for a 250 hitter with 20 homers as his upside when you know his downside is, you know, you drop him in April. Right. If you're looking for 250 and 20 home runs, Chris Davis of the Brewers is a better gamble because I think his ceiling is much higher or his floor is much higher if he does bust. Cause I, it's where I kind of have, I have Chris Davis about 260 and 20 bombs this year. Uh, but with Michael Morris, here's what stands out to me last year in April, slug 510, hit eight home runs. Rest of the season hit 201 and slug 322. So that's where that's the Michael Morse that I saw. And that to me, that looks done. And it wouldn't surprise me if Michael Morse is DFA'd by the Giants before the All Star break. Interesting. Making my call now. Let's shift over to uh, Pagan out in center fielder. Out in center field, rather. Pagan, the injury really sucked last year because you know, when you look at what he's been able to do over the last couple of years, get you 25 plus steals. A hit for a good average, especially in 2012, 2010, even before he got hurt last year. Hit for a good average, scores some runs, steals some bases. But last year was limited to just nine stolen bases uh, because of the playing time. He missed uh, over half the season. Only played 71 games. They got 305 plate appearances. He's now age 32. What are your expectations for Pagan for 2014? Yeah, and he's going to turn 33 in the season, so it's an old 32. Um, you know, I think... Uh, we we are we've already talked about how stolen bases age poorly. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think even if he had a full season last year, I would you know, if you project his his number, I mean I hate to do the you know he was on pace for, but um, if you project him into a full season last year, he still only had 18 stolen bases, um, and you know the projections have him around 20. That's I think assuming a bounce back in health. Um, but if you continue the natural progression, he could steal as few as, you know, 15 bases next year. Um, but, you know, I do think that he uh, he can show a decent batting average um, and, you know, five to ten homers. I think it's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, a team, especially one that has skimped on stolen bases, I, I you know, I might have begun on my final uh, spot or two on my roster. You know, the kind of, the kind of thing where I usually uh, – end up only spending about two uh, bench slots on hitters. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I might, there probably be guys available to me uh, with more speed upside at that point. But if there wasn't, um, and I, and I'd skimped on speed, I would put Pagan on a bench slot for sure. Uh, ADP is currently 57th in outfielders, three ahead of them. Adam Eaton at 217, Eric Young at 218, Chris Carter at 223. And then behind him, Josh Reddick at 245, Marlon Byrd at 247 and Cole Calhoun at 250. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, it's it's like the it's like the right pack, like the right area. I think I, you know, I was like the conversation I was just having. I'd I take Adam Eaton in that bench slot because just age difference yes. and yet 
you know, they're both projected into eight to ten. But, you know, Eaton also has a nicer home park for homers. So mm-hmm. I might take the – if they were both over under at seven homers, I might take the over for Eaton and the under for Pagan in terms of homers. Um, if they're both projected into 20 stolen bases, I'll take the younger guy. Um, so, you know, I take Eaton over him pretty comfortably. The rest of that package, I think he belongs there. And, I, you know, I like him better in my in my draft. Uh, Colby Rasmus is not really a, uh, a comparable player in terms. He's going. Of, Rasmus is going 14 picks after him. Yeah, Rasmus is a is more if you needed power. He's not stealing bases anymore. Melky Cabrera, I'd rather have Bagan. Uh, Junior Lake, Rajai Davis. I mean, Davis is going to be limited by playing time because he's pretty much a lefty guy. He doesn't hit righties very well. So that's where if you're looking for skills, if you're looking for what Bagan brings to the table. I like where he's ranked because I agree with you. I'll take Adam Eaton over him, but I'll take Pagan over everybody else listed behind him if I'm drafting for that specific skill set. How about uh, Lake and Borges? Uh, no, I'd, I'd still rather have Pagan. I'm worried about yeah. Borges losing playing time once Tavares proves himself healthy, uh, and Lake's complete wild card. Lake's complete wild card. So hard to say. I mean – you know, he probably will have power and speed, but the batting average could be anywhere from 220 to 280. So, um, yeah, I think it's a variance thing. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're, I mean, Eaton has, I think, a little bit less variance than, than Lake. So, right. it, you know, there's, those are three interesting bench guys, and it's all about your comfortability with variance, how much you need the upside or how much you want to have a guy who's most likely going to have a role all year because, Lake could be out of baseball. I mean, not out of baseball, baseball, but, you know, off off the team. Right. Um, you know, by the end of this year or so. Yep. Now, the last outfielder, Hunter Pence, we mentioned him earlier. It was his contract year. And up until August 1st, it didn't look like he was going to get much of a contract. And then the final two months of the season, hit 13 home runs, stole eight bases, helped a lot of fantasy owners win titles down the stretch if they were able to buy low before the trade deadline or they just rode him out with that because he ended up having a, a monster year. You look at 27 home runs, 22 stolen bases. Off the top of my head, I believe he was one of just five guys to pull a 2020 season out last year from the outfield. Cut his strikeout rate down by almost five full percentage points. But again, he's 30. We mentioned earlier, you know, he's got when free agency kind of hits. Now he's 30. Do you, and those 22 steals came after he stole 13 bases combined over the previous two seasons. What's more realistic, him hitting 20 bombs again or him stealing 15 bases in 2014? Um, the bombs are more realistic for sure. Uh, he's done that. He's been sort of a metronome when it comes to power. Um, you know, 25 homers, you know, he's been within a a homer or two of that every year of his career since his first. So, uh, uh, it's just so he's a, he's a really tough one for me because he's so weird looking. Um, and I know that doesn't, not supposed to matter, but his line, his stats are weird looking too. He's, he's really average across the board i mean average walk rate average strikeout rate yep. um you know power is trending down towards average powers is his biggest tool but it's it's not you know a, it's not a lead or anything he actually his ground ball to fly ball rate last year was exactly average um his line drive rate is worse than average but uh his power is a little bit better than average he That's- cracks me he cracks me up because if you're looking if you're looking to project him stat wise He's a dream. I mean, his walk, his walk totals, 58, one year of 41, 56, 56, 52. His home run to fly ball ratio over each of the last four seasons, 14, 8, 14, 7, 14, 8, 14, 8. 
So a lot of people will say 10% home run to fly ball ratio. You know, the, Hunter Pence has clearly established 14.7, 48%. That's his baseline. That's where he's <laughs> able to go because he's done it for four straight seasons, has done it over, you know, roughly, uh, you know, 2,500 plate appearances. So we're well beyond the stabilization rate. That's what he does. That's what I like about Hunter Pence. It, the steals were just the crazy part, but everything else was right in line with what he's always done. The steals were just gravy. It was a nice bonus for uh, for fantasy owners last year. Yeah, the uh, the 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 thing about him is, um, you know, I would say that there's a clear progression in stolen bases. Um, towards 2012 and so therefore we should see 2013 as a blip and really project him hardcore regression there and, and five or six stolen bases next year the problem is he had um, uh, a sports hernia surgery in the off season after 2011 and if you look at that uh, 2011 was his worst steals uh, number and it was by far it went from his highest steals number before 18 to 8 in 2011 then he had the surgery, and then he only stole five the next year, uh, and he had one of his worst. He had his worst season um, the year after hernia surgery, and by his own account, he says it took him a really long time uh, to feel comfortable again after that surgery. It, it is a weird surgery because it's like something opening on the inside, um, and so, and you know, his strikeout that was. If there's an anomalous season, it's almost 2012 now. I mean. We thought it was setting a new baseline, but it really just looks like that was the year where something was wrong. He says he dedicated himself, you know, best shape of his life coming into 2013. He, he's a famous paleo diet guy, um, and he has a lot of uh, – he does a lot of crazy stretches and stuff. So um, I will – I think that, uh, you know, 15 10, 10 to 15 stone bases are possible. I'm just way more willing to bank on uh, 20 – 24 home runs. So yeah, definitely agree with so you. It's an interesting because he's not a sabermetric darling. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't do your walk thing. Um, he doesn't, you know, show enough in a lot of places. He's had some really bad defensive years. Oh, on yeah. Ledger. But both of those bad defensive years were also the years that are, might've been affected by his hernia. So, um, and, he's, and then you combine it with how he runs with his arms, like straight down and, how he throws, uh, a lot of stuff. How he, his warm-up swings are always fun to watch. <laughs> He's just a crazy player. And he doesn't do anything picture-perfect. And is, and he always – he's really in, uh, inconsistent and uh, in terms of month-to-month stuff. Yeah, but in the final – like but, I said, month-to-month crazy, but in that final line, man, it's, it's pretty much rock. You know what you're going to get out of him. Just got to hold on to him. Yep. Uh, finally, pitching. The Giants have always been a nice place to go to for for fantasy pitching because uh, it's been both good and rather stable for the most part. Uh, and then 2013 happened. Bob Gardner was still awesome, but Matt Cain had his worst year. Tim Lincecum uh, took a slide, and Ryan Vogelsong was a nice reclamation project for them prior. Really had a bad year. Of those three guys, who do you have the most faith in coming back to where they used to be in 2014? No, definitely Matt Cain. I mean, there's no, no, no question. Um, I did, I didn't see anything uh, crazy, crazy off, uh, and I don't, I don't see a reason that he deserved that home run rate. Um, where I do see a reason that Tim Lincecum deserved his, and it, it, you know, a lot of people are talking about, oh, Tim Lincecum had a three five six xFIP last year, 
Um, and that's, you know, that's a good number. And it, yes, he has still has the strikeouts and he showed, uh, one of his better control years, but that's control. That's like walk rate. And, uh, you can see his home run rate inflated the last couple of years. What I think it's very simple. What happened to me? He had a 95 mile an hour fastball. He had no idea where it was going and that was fine. Now he has a 91 mile an hour fastball and he has no idea where it's going. And that's not fine. Um, and he doesn't have fastball command. He, he can, he can, he knows what the zone is and right. he has, he can repeat his delivery just enough to get it, you know, towards the zone. But there are just way too many times when you see that catcher's glove, I mean, just really go from like way outside to like way inside. I mean, he'll, you know, it's, yeah, it's the zone is like, you know, whatever inches across he'll be, he'll miss by that much. And if you're trying to go outside, to a righty and you put it right in his pull happy inner zone bye bye birdie you know so yeah. i feel like um i think his new uh, homer rate per year is one and you know you look at the projections that project him into about a homer per game uh per homer per nine and they have a three nine uh three eight three nine era and a bad whip because he doesn't have great control so you know some teams can can deal with that for the strikeouts, uh, but uh, we also know that those strikeouts aren't going to age. In, they're not going to get much better. So, and the velocity is not coming back. The velocity is not coming back, and he's he's in he's been in the best situation uh, for his skill set that he could be in, other than Petco. And uh, this is who he is now. I mean, maybe a little bit of regression towards you know just under four instead of just over four, but uh, I'm not I'm not. I'm not calling for him to have a three five ERA last next year because he had a three five right. last year. I'm just kind of stunned. His his ADP right now is two forty nine, and I'm I can't believe it's that high. It should be it should be even lower than that. Rather, here's some of the guys that are being drafted after Tim Lincecum according to ADP: Hiroki Kuroda, Matt Garza, AJ Burnett, Jared Parker, Giovanni Gallardo, Dan Heron, Jake Peavy, Alex Wood, Dan Straley, Tyson Ross, Ian Kennedy, Scott Casimir, Corey Kluber. I'm almost willing to take every single one of those guys over Lincecum. Yeah, yeah, I've been mine. Uh, he went 215, which is even higher. And uh, behind him, Chris Tillman, I would not take. Uh, Lance Lynn, I'm not sure I would take. Uh, Corey Kluber would take. Gallardo, I'm not sure I would take over Lincecum. Um, Taiwan Walker would take. Derek Holland before the injury would have taken. Uh, Matt Garza would take. Uh, A.J. Burnett would take. Wood, Corota, there's your, there's your, there's your group. Wood, Corota, Ross, and actually in my draft they went right in a row. Huh. Wood, Corota, Ross, Perez, Nalasco, Straley, Hart, uh, and then Hart. We're at pick, we're at pick two nineteen in mine, and Lindstrom has not gone yet. Um, looking at Kane, Kane has fallen out of the top one hundred for ADP. He's currently one hundred two. Three ahead of him are Gio Gonzalez at ninety nine, Matt Latos at one hundred, and Mike Miner right there at one hundred two as well. Behind him. Homer Bailey at 111, Shelby Miller at 116, Alex Cobb at 117. Personally, I'll take Bailey and Cobb over Kane. I like Kane a lot, uh, and I think it's a nice value opportunity where he's where he should not be out of the top 100. But I also think that Bailey and Cobb are still too low as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I like um, I like that group better uh, because um, they're younger. And uh, they've shown more upside in the strikeout category. As much as I like Kane, I think his true talent strikeout rate is, is around seven yes. per nine. And uh, so there's uh, 
There, I think there's uh, I think there's more. Yeah, I really like Cobb's changeup. I mean, it's not like Kane's pitches are bad. Um, and I think yeah, I don't think that he's uh, I don't think that he's ready to to really fall off. So um, anyway, I think uh, he's in, in about the right space. Uh, I would start thinking about him um, right around the eighth, ninth, tenth rounds. And uh, I think again, it's like you know, there's there's got to be more risk in your Cobb type. I mean, uh, you know, what if the is it his curve? What if his curve is not really that great? And uh, and people start laying off the changeup and going after the fastball, which is you know ninety ninety one, right? Um, you know, then Cobb could look a little different this year. Whereas Kane, the league has had you know so many shots at Kane, and yeah, they they got to him one year, but that's one year out of so many years, and they only got to him with a few homers, you know, in bad spots. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it was like a, a, a really normal year. I mean, really. I hate to do that thing where you're like, oh, without his bad starts, he was good. But Kane really had a couple bad starts. Yeah, early on really, in the season. Yeah, and he was the kind. It was the kind of thing where, yeah, he gave up more homers than usual, but a few bad starts really made things look a lot worse. Right. My final point on him in my draft in the ninth round, we had ten starting pitchers taken, starting with Julio Tehran at 107, Bailey at 108, Iwakuma 109. Salazar 110, then Matt Cain went at 112, Cobb 113, Medlin 114, Moore 117, Waka 119, and Kashner at 120. So it's like that's your pocket. And we'll get into uh, Salazar here shortly, but you know, that's where he went in my draft. He went 10 spots below where his ADP is, but he's also right there in, in that pocket among some of the names that we just ran, rattled off before that. Yeah. All right, shifting over to the Indians. Uh, first thing that's kind of got a lot of attention this offseason is the fact that Carlos Santana may play some games at third base this year. I mean, we've seen him get some first base eligibility within the season, but it seems like this third base thing may have some legs to it. Bonus is if he gets third base eligibility, that's cool. So you can use him around if you have to cover injuries. But I also think that affects if you're looking at a Lonnie Chisenhall bounce back. That's going to cut into his opportunities. If, if they're talking about Santana playing third base, that means they don't have enough faith in Chisenhall. I've seen some people say, hey, maybe this is the year for Chisenhall, much like we were talking about Brett Laurie earlier. But it, it doesn't seem like the Indians have that same level of confidence. Your thoughts on Santana? Um, I mean, I, I think he has the bat to play anywhere. And I just I doubt that someone who had sort of iffy defense behind the plate um, is going to be a great third baseman. But they're kind of different skill sets, so it's not impossible. And there have been other catchers that have come out from behind the plate and played third. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily. Josh Donaldson is a great. He was a terrible defensive catcher. He's been a great third baseman. I think they're very different skill sets. I mean, in terms of like framing, you know, framing requires you to have strong, uh, strong wrists and and be able to uh, squat low to the ground. I mean, yeah, you're gonna have to squat a little bit at third base, but you don't have to, you know pick a ball you don't have to pick a ball with the with your hand facing down uh from an inch off the ground you know what i mean it's like it's just not uh, applicable so can he can he get into a squat and and can he get to his left and right we don't know so until we know that better i don't think that we know um you know exactly how the the infield is going to shape up um but uh you know i think he could get uh, playing time all over the field. Uh, they just, you know, ramp up Gomes's, um work behind the plate. 
um, and put Swisher out in the outfield sometimes um, to spell that Murphy Rayburn uh, platoon that's out there. So, um, and it's also DH um, for Swisher and for Santana. Right. Uh, it's not like you need to run Jason Giambi out there. So, um, I actually like that that platoon, that outfield platoon of Murphy and Rayburn, assuming Murphy returns to his pre 2013 form because he was pretty terrible last year offensively. He was really good defensively, but offensively took a major step back. He's never been able to hit lefties, but he just wasn't even that good against righties last year. We know Rayburn uh, is a nice platoon partner. I'm glad you mentioned Gomes because, uh, you know, that was a nice pickup from them getting him from Toronto. They weren't really sure how they were going to use Gomes, but I thought I liked what I saw from Gomes last year at the plate. Yes. You know, strikeout rate, just slightly below league average walk rates below league average. But that kid's got pop in his bat, and I like the fact if they're giving Santana more playing time at another position, that means more playing time for Gomes. And if you're looking for a catcher that could possibly give you 15 to 20 home runs out of nowhere, it may be Gomes. Yeah, somebody was asking me on Twitter to to, to talk about uh, him versus somebody like Deonor Navarro. Oh, I'll take Gomes all day long. And and yeah, and my my answer um, for that was. You know, the big step forward for Gomes last year was strikeout rate. I mean, he, he's always had power up and down his minor league, uh, his minor league career, but he used to strike out uh, more, more than a quarter of the time, yes. you know, most of the time. And, and then all of a sudden this year, he really, and he really cut his swinging strike rate. He made more contact, and, you know, it looks sustainable that he could do it. But uh, more importantly, Deano Navarro's big uh, step forward last year was power. And power uh, is way harder to tell in small samples. Yeah, I, mean, I think we talked about this. I think we covered him in the Blue Jay uh, part of the podcast a couple of episodes ago. But I, this but bears repeating. Like you hit three or four homers and everything looks great. Yeah, but this uh, bears repeating whereas, with him. His home run to fly ball ratio. This is Navarro. 2 6 7 8 8 0 18.3 last year. We just talked about yeah. that with Hunter Pence. That's where all of Deion Navarro's value was last year. The fact that he hit a bunch of home runs. Now, playing at Rogers Center, that's a good ballpark for that. But are you telling me that he's going to – I mean, you go from 8 to 18.3. We've seen Rolabanez do that, and he just gave up all sorts of contact. You know, his contact rate dropped tremendously when he did that. But Navarro actually made more contact last year and was more disciplined at the plate. Uh, you know, his walk rate looked back in line where it used to be. But to me, no, I don't even think Navarro hits as many as eight home runs where I bet Gomes' final home run total is going to be double what Navarro does. Yeah, and, you know, and you, yeah, right. And you, if, you re, if you regress that homer rate, you know, back to his league average, uh, back to league average, you could take a lot of his value. Um, whereas with Gomes... You know, if you regress his strikeout rate to league average, that's in a positive way. Yes. If you if you regress his strikeout league, his strikeout to his career average, you still you still get a usable strikeout rate. You know, that's the thing. He, I think that's why the Blue Jays traded him. If you have a twenty five percent strikeout rate in Triple A, uh, you could have a thirty percent strikeout rate in the major leagues and not be useful at all. Uh, but you can also have a twenty five percent strikeout rate in in Triple A and have a twenty five percent strikeout rate in the majors. It's, it's just how it's just a weird way. You know, strikeout rates don't translate directly to the major leagues. Yeah, Paul, not... I think we said this there. Paul Goldschmidt's a great example. Paul Goldschmidt had near, near 30% strikeout rate in the minor leagues at some levels, and now look what he's doing at the major league level. So regress Jan Gomes' uh, strikeout rate a little bit, um, and uh, I believe in the power. Um, 
And he's, I, I joke that there's a bunch of guys that can hit 260 and hit 18 homers. Jan Gomes is one of them. He's going to be one of the cheaper ones. So I like him. I, I, Santana's bat is so good that I don't worry, really. Uh, and, in fact, I like the idea that he might play third, might play first, might play DH, because he might be uh, one of the biggest plate appearance um, catchers. He'll probably be, you know, number one or number two with Maurer uh, in terms of plate appearances for catchers. So um, I, I say that the move is a positive for Santana, um, except in dynasty leagues where if he really leaves from behind the plate, then he could lose his catcher eligibility. But right. that's not even given because they really only have to put him back there like, you know, 10 to 20 times for you to for you to keep it another year. So, yep. I mean, Santana's a, he's a top three catcher ADP right now. And I don't, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Gomes is the 14th catcher off the board at 215. The three guys ahead of him, Castro at 157, Pierzynski at 188, Saltalamaki at 209. Is, are you comfortable with that order? Um, what I what would I was it salty? Salty's five picks ahead of him, and uh-huh. Przinsky's roughly thirty picks ahead of him. I would definitely take him ahead of Salty. Yes, um, for sure. For I'd sure, also take him ahead of AJ. I like Castro as, as you know Ramos, Castro ten eleven, Gomes twelve. You know, if people are going to take Przinsky, in Przinsky, you know, he had the, you know, the numbers in Chicago, the numbers in Texas. Now he's moving to Fenway, and, and, and he's older. I mean, catchers once they start dropping off, they drop off big. And he's had he has a lot of mileage on him, and he's thirty eight. You know, so I, I think there's some red flags there. I like Gomes a lot more than I like. I'll take Gomes at two fifteen all day long over Przinsky at one eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, oh, for sure, when cost is uh, was cost. I mean, I was thinking, you know, would I pick at the same pick? Who would I pick? Um, there is something to be said for uh, Przinsky's, uh contact rate and uh, probably better batting average, but uh, and in recent times, decent power. But uh, he's old and he could drop off uh, precipitously. And the Red Sox uh, have other options. Um, if he is terrible. So, um, yeah, I, I would just – I'd pause a little bit more if they were the same place. But if, if Jan's cheaper, I would take Jan for sure. Uh, indeed, he's much cheaper. Now let's move over. Let's look at Kipnis, who has – his ADP right now is 21. I mean, this is a guy I'm, – I'm, I remember taking him last year in Tout Wars – or what, maybe it was uh, – no, it was Labor. I took him at like 61st, 62nd pick, and some people was like, wow, that's, you know, that seems like really high for him. And he was a monster. I mean, now most of the stuff came in the first half. First half of the season, 13 home runs, hit 301, slug 514. Rest of the season, four home runs, 261, slug 371. So it was a tale of two halves for him. Uh, are, are you cool with Jason Kipnis being a, a rock-solid second-round pick in the way these drafts are going so far? Um, I think, uh, uh, <clears throat> I think he's going to be the best second baseman in fantasy baseball this year. Okay. Fair I, enough. Even over, I, think, I have a hard time giving that over Cano. I mean, I, Cano's always been a top five player. I think he's obviously going to be, you know, top 10, top 15, but right now, uh, I've seen, I've seen Kipnis being drafted over Cano in some drafts. Uh, and right now ADP Cano's nine and, and Kipnis is 21. Well, I, I recognize that this is a bold prediction type prediction. It's not 
necessarily what will be in my values. It's, it's, it's this idea that I have. Um, and the reason that I have it is because I think Cano's uh, runs in RBI are going to take a hit. Um, and if you just regress him in a homer or two, uh, then he's in the mid twenties. Um, you know, it's not that hard to get him down to 26 without a, a precipitous drop off or anything. Um, and, uh, you know, Kipnis is, is, if you took his best two halves is way better than that. Um, uh, and so basically he's had two straight years where he's had a bad second half and, uh, you know, first half, second half splits are not predictive. Um, and yes, I know you should probably take his full season totals when you're projecting him, but what, you know, if there is a way to put a narrative on it, I would say, here's a player who's getting used to the bigs. And one of these years he's going to put together a season where he keeps his stamina up all season. And, um, so I think, you know, maybe regress the steals a little bit, but a 25, 25 season is really not impossible for Jason Kipnis. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he went 22 on my draft. Cano went five in that one. Uh, with Kipnis, I'm I'm, absolutely, I'm fine with him being a second round pick, especially when you look at second base. I believe we've talked about when you look at the position at second base, Cano, Kipnis, Pedroia, Carpenter. Those are your four that are going before the 60th overall pick because Kinsler and Zobris, two guys that have always been in the top 60, they're in decline statistically. And nobody really knows what to do with Altuve and, and Brandon Phillips. So if you're worried, if you're in a mixed league and you're worried about some positional scarcity, you know, it's kind of there. The first base, the whole right side of the infield is not terribly deep this year. I mean, there's some question marks over there. It always looks like that on paper. And then something else happens and it changes that. But definitely when you, when you put the position in mind, I'm cool with Kipnis being a, a top 25 pick because I think he can definitely be a top 15 to 20 when the season's done, said and done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, he, you know, even if you don't listen to my cockamamie ideas about half splits or 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 whatever and putting together a great season, uh, he's been fairly consistent over the last two years. So uh, there's definitely something to believe in there. All right, let's shift over to uh, inconsistent on the other side of the bag, and that's as Drupal Cabrera. Uh, we talked about earlier how the age 27 season is pretty much garbage, and and Cabrera was a fine example of that last year. Age 27 season, pretty much had his worst fantasy season in the last three. This is a guy hit 25 home runs, stole 17 bags two seasons ago last year, hit 14 home runs, stole just nine bags, and had a, a career-worst 242 batting average last year, while his strikeout rate jumped over four full percentage points from his previous high. I mean, he was 16.1% the previous season, 20.3 last year. It was the 20.3 is a career high. What's up with Cabrera? Uh, I mean, what's amazing to me is that he's not even 30 yet. So um, I think that there could be some regression um, just to back towards his career numbers um, that could make him better. But, you know, one thing that I think is going on with um, him is, is expectations. And, um, you know, I think that if you don't have as many expectations about him, then you can get a lot of value out of him. I mean, for example, uh, just... The, just based on the numbers he put up last year, even if he just did those again, which were so underwhelming or whatever, he was the 15th best shortstop uh, by our values, retroactive values. So um, that puts him, you know, almost a starting level shortstop. And uh, you've got guys ahead of him that are often injured, coming off of uh, PED suspensions, um, are are way old um, and don't have track records. So 
there's a there's a reason um, that he gets drafted even in mixed leagues without an MI slot. But if you have an MI slot, he needs to be drafted. He's a top end uh, middle infielder in those situations, and uh, because you know because he's 15th as a shortstop, and then you add in the possibility that you know his batting average on balls and play regresses back to his 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 career average, mm-hmm. um, and that he if he steals just one more bag, then you've got a guy who can hit. 270, 15, 10 again. That's not, that's not impossible. When I look at where he's going right now, his ADP is 170. Three ahead of him, Andrelson Simmons at 145, Alexi Ramirez at 152. Xander Bogarts and all of his inconsi- all of his inexperience is still going seven picks ahead of Cabrera. Though, you know, I may flip-flop those two on, on my list, but right behind him, and this is 15 picks, 15 picks later, Jimmy Rollins, 20 picks later, Brad Miller. 26 picks later, Johnny Peralta. Um, I like Brad Miller quite a bit in 2014. We haven't talked about him yet, but I see him as doing what Cabrera used to do, be that guy that has the 15 home runs, 15 stolen bases, and hits for the good average. And and I like Peralta. I think I'd rather have Peralta and Miller, and even Jonathan Villar in his stolen base opportunities. I think I'd rather have those three over Cabrera, and all three of those are going 20 to 30 picks later. Um. I'm really happy because I I really disagree with you. That's kind of fun. Yeah, I like when we have disagreements. Uh, yeah, this is this is the first time where I've just I just don't agree with almost everything you said. Brad Miller, I agree with, um, and because he's younger, he has more upside. But we have to agree that he has more risk. Yes, uh, because he just doesn't have the same track record. So you know, Brad Miller, if he's you know 50 picks cheaper or whatever, I will take him over Estrubel. But Estrubel oh, is definitely dropping a lot of drafts. So you know they're starting to become comparable, but in terms of Rollins and um, and uh, uh, Peralta, I mean, there's no way. I I am really down on Peralta this year. I mean, just the the park, the age, the the PED suspension, um, just the the fact that he's had so many bad seasons uh, in his career. He doesn't offer any speed, and he's going to a pitcher's park. I mean, I just i I think he's going to have a, a season where he hits, you know, two forty five with ten homers. Um, so uh, I would definitely take Estrubel Cabrera over that. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Rollins, I think you know, still will will steal more bags than Cabrera. I mean, for sure, if he needs speed. Uh, but I, I'm a, I'm a little bit more. Uh, it sounds like I'm a little bit more into Estrubel Cabrera this year. I mean, just look at Bogarts. We just really have no idea. Right. Um, how many, especially how many bases he's going to steal? Yeah, I think I think Bogarts is getting penalized a little bit by the fact that you know how much how much hype Jerks and Profar had last year and what he didn't do. And I think Bogarts is being penalized by that kind of you know if Profar couldn't do it, how is Bogarts going to do it? Uh, you know, again, disagree. I'd rather take. I'll still take Cabrera over Bogarts, but I can see the argument for not doing so. When I look at my draft, uh, Corey Schwartz likes as Drupal as much as you do. He took up 134th overall. I got Brad Miller 50 picks later at 186. Uh, and that's why I, well, I like Brad Miller well, a lot. Now we agree. I mean, because 50 picks later, I love that. I love Rollins that. Rollins went 202. Villar went 199. Eric Ibar 218. Uh, I thought Cabrera was a reach at 134, but I was very happy to get Brad Miller because after that, after Cabrera, Jed Lowry went, Alexi Ramirez, J.J. Hardy, and then I waited two full rounds before I picked Brad Miller. 
One thing I'm noticing, um, though, is that Cabrera does represent a bit of an end of a tier. Um, and I think even in the names that you're sort of mentioning, he represents the end of a tier. Because I think the people who probably picked uh, Bogarts and Cabrera were at least somewhat excited about it. I think the people who probably picked Rollins and Peralta were like, oh, God, I got to get a shortstop or a middle infielder. Right. Um, so I think that Cabrera is – and I've noticed this in drafts that I've done um, otherwise, too. I'm trying to – Pick mine up. Here we go. Uh, I think I actually got him in mine. Let me see. No, I didn't. Glenn Colton got him at 167. Um, and uh, Jed Lowry uh, went ahead of him. Johnny Peralta went behind him. I'm really, I just, I'm really down on him. Uh, I got Brad Miller 192. Sweet. Um, so after 167, you know, 25 picks later, that's not your, your nice 50-pick bump. But actually, Cabrera went – Lower in ours. So I, I like Cabrera um, around 150, around Jed Lowry territory. Um, and uh, Anderson Simmons, that's fine. Um, I would actually pick him over Anderson Simmons because I don't, I'm not sure Anderson Simmons is going to hit 20 homers again, and he doesn't really have much speed. Uh, and Alexi Ramirez, I don't think, is going to steal 20 again. So there are some guys ahead of him that I like, but I like this rule better than. I mean, Alexi Ramirez could hit 270 with. 10 homers and 10 stolen bases. Yeah, he he's all over the place, at least with Cabrera. And as, you know, I think last year was the worst that we're going to see him. Let's say, let's say you're in a keeper league and you've got to draft guys, you know, three-year deals. I'm cool with taking Cabrera now. I'm just not going to, when it gets to his option year, I'm not going to extend him. I can live with him for another three years uh, along yeah. those guys. But if it came down to Cabrera or, or Ramirez, I'll take Cabrera. If it came down between Cabrera and Rollins, I'll take Cabrera. Uh, yeah. For a three-year spot. For a one-year spot, I may lean Rollins, but that's kind of where I sit with those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I think, he's, I think he's a very interesting player, but I think, in general, I find him undervalued. Fair enough. Let's look at uh, Michael Bourne, a guy that, for a long time, has been fantasy gold if you're looking for stolen bases. And then last year seemed to age a few years within a single season. Uh, first time he hasn't exceeded 600 plate appearances in quite some time last year. Stole a career-low 23 bags uh, in 35 attempts to 71% rate, which is right about league average. And, you know, ended up hitting 263, which is a low batting average for him. Overall disappointing year for Michael Bourne. You know, where do you go? The guy's 31 years old. I'm not sure if he's turning 32 during the season. But Michael Bourne took a big step backwards last year in his fantasy value. Where are you sitting with him for a guy that's currently, you know, Barely in the top 200 of ADP. Um, I I often find myself looking for uh, his type of player late in drafts. So, um, you know, if he's really dropping that far uh, and I need steals, I'll, I'll take a shot. I mean, I know we know that stone bases age really poorly, but that's a really significant drop off. And there is a, a certain amount of injury component to it. Uh, he only played 575 plate appearances after being a 700 guy for a while. Right. Um, so, you know, bump that back up and he's kind of closer to 30. And, um, you know, the steamer projections have him with 32 stolen bases and a 260 average being worth $7. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's pretty decent. I'm, I, 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 I will, I might even own him this year. I mean, I, I, I think. You know, people. I think the people who did own him will hate his guts, and uh, and really not want to own him. I had so. him last year and won my league in spite of it. I ended up. I needed. 
I needed speed. When I had when I looked at my keeper list last year, my AL league, I needed speed, and I had a lot of power. So I spent money on Jose Reyes and Michael Bourne. Those were the two guys that I wanted. I budgeted. There's pretty good inflation in my league, so I budgeted eighty bucks, got the combined for seventy four, and they both really upset me. I still won the league, uh, but I had to make some moves to counteract that. If we play the three ahead, three behind game with him, Christian Yelich, George Springer, and Carl Crawford are ahead of him. Frankly, I'd rather have Bourne than all three of those guys because we don't. We talked about Springer. We don't know when he's going to come up. Uh, same thing with Yelich. The Miami could burn a service time. They may not. And Carl Crawford, if you're comparing Crawford and Bourne, I'd rather have Bourne. And then three behind him, Aoki, Venable, and Garcia. I'd rather have Aoki. I know that I have confidence because he's moving to Kansas City because he's going to be in that leadoff spot. And because Ned Yost loves to run, I think Aoki will have more stolen bases than Bourne by season's end. Oh, that's really interesting because in terms of percentage, um, I would go with Bourne. But you're right. There's always a manager component to these things. You know, percentage and age favor Bourne. Uh, Aoki's going to be 32 this year. He's, he's already 32. Um, and, uh, and right, that Bourne is younger? Yeah, Bourne just turned 31 in the offseason. Yeah, yeah. And Bourne is falling off a higher peak. Uh, I think, you know, Aoki's 30 stolen bases may prove to be a peak. Uh, but you, you're right about Yost. He's kind of a crazy man. Um, and he, he, he got Jeff Francoeur into 20 stolen bases. So, um, you know, he, he might be able to do wonders with Aoki. That's a really interesting uh, choice. Otherwise, I agree with you on who I'd take Bourne over. And, you know, taking Springer and Yalik in a redraft league over uh, Bourne, I think, is a little silly. And yeah. Yalik so young he's he's the strikeout rate wasn't great last year and he has stuff to work on i mean it's a smooth swing and stuff but he's not and he's not projected to be a, a standout guy in power or speed but he might you know be in the comp and the comp and it, he might he's a might whereas born is a little bit more of a, of a right probably i mean i'm excited and, to see what what springer's going to do at the major league level i've you know that guy can really hit the baseball yeah yeah but he's a 30 percent strikeout rate in the minor leagues i mean that 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 bust rate is is huge. Um, I mean, there's only there's only like two guys a year in the majors that have a thirty percent strikeout. Yeah, rate. I, I know it's a risk, but yeah, he's one of the because the the Astros spring training is about twenty minutes from my house, so I'm able to go over there a lot. It's like I'd like to describe Springer. He's one of those guys that when you're walking up to the fields to watch BP, you know it's him, and it's not by seeing mm. it. You just you hear the ball coming off the bat. You're like, oh, Springer must be hitting. And then you look at the gauge, like, yeah, he's hitting. So he's got, you know, to me, when I, I spent a couple of days on the fields back there, and, you know, he, Chris Carter, when he makes his connection, Carlos Correa, you know, those kind of guys, they have that that sound of the ball coming off the bat. And I'm, I'm just intrigued to see what, what Springer's athleticism can do at the major league level. I'm hoping it's like along Goldschmidt's, a Goldschmidt's line, where the strikeout rate was high in the minors, and when he got to the majors, he was able to get better. And uh, we'll see where it goes with him. But I'm excited. I just don't think he's going to be up before the middle of June. Yeah, they don't really have a reason to. And they have a full outfield right now. And they're going to at least give him 150 plate appearances. That's that's what they've shown in the past. Right. So uh, I think um, I think you I think you've hit the nail. The problem is that the hype machine is pretty, pretty solid with him. So that's why he's being taken ahead of Bourne, who's a starting outfielder in most five outfielder formats. I, I can't believe he wouldn't be. Springer can't start for you right off the, the bat. So you're taking a guy, you know, who you have to slot into a bench slot and then later take a, a bench guy and put him in your starting slot, whereas you could put Bourne in there and find another sleeper later. Yeah, speaking uh, of hype machines, let's, let's shift over to the mound. Danny Salazar. 
Salazar is currently the 32nd starting pitcher off the board. His ADP is 140. His ADP is currently ahead of the likes of Tony Singrani, Hunjin Ryu, Andrew Kashner, Francisco Liriano, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, Jeff Samarja, Doug Fister, CJ Wilson, Johnny Cueto, Justin Masterson, uh, even so far Tanaka. I mean, Tanaka, a lot of people weren't drafting him, so right now he's ahead of him as well. He's just behind the likes of Chris Medlin, Julio Tehran, and Jared Weaver. Personally, I think Salazar is going too high at 32 because I don't think when I watch him pitch, this is a guy that he has to stay ahead to be successful. When he falls behind, he leverages his fastball, and I know he throws it hard, but if you know it's coming, they're going to hit it. And if you go back, you go back and watch that wild card start against the Rays, go watch the first time through the lineup versus the second time through the lineup. You saw a lot of uncomfortable late swings early on, and that second time through the lineup, he didn't make it through it. And, and the, the fastball changeup combination is really deadly, but he's a two-pitch pitcher to lefties, a two-pitch pitcher to righties. And I would like to see him gain more confidence in his secondary pitches before I'm taking him over guys with proven track records. If, even as much as Liriano's been up and down, I'd still rather have Liriano. I really like Andrew Kashner for this season. I like what John Lester did to rebound from last year. I like Doug Fister with the Nationals. I just, with, with Salazar... It could be a high. It could be a high. You know, it's almost a wild card, if you will, because there's a high ceiling there. But I think there's a really low floor because of the workload, because of the fact he's a converted position player, so he doesn't have that pitching experience. There's just too many red flags for him to be going this high, in my opinion. What about you? Yeah, they. The I just I can't square with how much I love him. I mean, I just. It was it was really fun to watch him. I, he was one of uh, a handful of players last year where I left the press box and like made sure that I sat behind home plate so I could I could take it in. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I love watching this guy pitch. I just think when I when I'm watching him pitch, I'm like, oh man, that you could be so much better if we if we just get some more confidence because it, it almost got predictable when he got behind two zero in a count fastball every single time didn't throw a single secondary pitch so if you're if you're 2-0 and everybody knows you're gonna throw a fastball if you don't have the confidence to throw that change up and that's a really really good change up too throw it in a 2-0 count and see what happens that just to me I, I just felt like when I was watching him as good as he was I, I I could see the even more potential in him and that's I found myself wanting more as good as he was I just wanted to see more out of him yeah yeah and um you know there is an interesting thing going on against right-handers because um, split fingers have a reverse split. Um, so he does actually throw the slider more than the split finger against right-handers, as you said. Uh, he still does throw the split some. But then then you look at the slider, uh, it has a below-average whiff rate and a really terrible grounder rate um, against riders, righties. So even though I thought the slider was pretty good from watching, the numbers say the slider is you know, overall is average, but um, against right-handers is maybe below average. So um, that's a that's a really interesting uh, problem to have. But um, I think it's also something that a pitching coach probably knows about, and um, they can probably talk to him, and that a spring could really fix pretty easily. Um, and in terms of just like, would I rather start with stuff and then and then teach brain, or or start with brain and then teach stuff? I know Maddox is everybody's, you know, example of how far brain can take you. I would almost always rather start with the stuff, and we know the stuff is good. You know, 
whether I would take him over Julio Tehran, uh, maybe. I mean, Tehran's changeup, he, he lost that one. I mean, he didn't even he – did, he, did, he didn't take it out of his back pocket for a long time. And, um, you know, there's questions there. Would I take him over Weaver? I might take him over Weaver. Weaver's velocity is down to like 85. Um, so, yeah, it's a little high, and I don't really want to spend on that. But um, the way that the drafts are, are, are shaping up for me this year, I'm going to take a, a late uh, ace, um, like a Verlander. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a top, I'm going to try to take a top 12 ace, but one in the, like, tell, you know, 10 to 14 range in there. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to take a young guy second, it looks like. And if, if I can't get Garrett Cole, um, I might take Manny Salazar. I, I, go ahead. Sorry. Two guys that could be aces is all I'm saying. I like the idea of taking two guys that could be aces, could win a Cy Young. And Stallion Salazar has Cy Young stuff. As for the, uh, the innings limit, I think you're right to be worried about that. Although he did manage 140 innings last year, and that was way beyond what he did before, right. so 40 with normal, uh, with the normal team, 140 would mean that he could go to 160, 170 innings next year. You know, if they're in the playoffs again, they're going to be playing the same game uh, where they're like, "Oh crap, our best pitcher is running up on 170 innings." So, uh, and 170 innings is good. I mean, if you're in a head-to-head league, yes, you have to think about that. But if you're in a rotor league and you get 170 innings of great, fine, thank it. Yeah, because a lot of teams don't like jumping their guys more than 20 or so innings in a single season. I know the Rays are like that. They don't really like their guys throwing uh, much more than that in a single season. We look at his workload record. You know, He got hurt in 2010. In 2011, he worked just uh, 14 innings. Then he worked 87 and two-thirds in 2012. And if you combine minors and majors last year, 145. So he nearly doubled that workload. That's why I have a hard – I see him closer to 160. Uh, in the final, we just when I look at the numbers, of, uh, because of his age too, he's only twenty four. He'll be turning twenty four because right now he's twenty three. Uh, he turns twenty. He just turned twenty four. I'm sorry, twenty four earlier this month. So that's where he's at. So I just think I have a hard time. He went one ten in the draft I'm in. I just think that's too high for him. Uh, and I'd rather go over the the track records with some of the other guys. Let's close out uh, with the reliever role because the closer role rather because we do have a new closer in Cleveland. Out goes Chris Perez, who actually had the third highest save total over the last three years in baseball. Did you realize that? Uh, yeah. You know, to my consternation, because I think every year I've said that he's going to lose his role. Craig Kimbrell, Jim Johnson, Chris Perez, only three relievers in baseball with at least 100 saves over the last three years. Go figure. Uh, so now we have John Axford. And I wrote a piece over uh, the last week of Fangraphs, talked about how St. Louis told him, dude, you're tipping your pitches. You need to fix this. And for the brief time that he had with St. Louis, John Axford looked really good. And John Axford, his overall numbers were kind of crap last year because he gave up all those runs and home runs early on in the season. Settled down nicely. But when you hear about the pitch tipping and then look at the hits, more hits than innings pitched, it kind of makes sense. He looked a lot better in St. Louis as far as swings and misses, contact rate in the zone, et cetera. And right now he's 29th in closers. Right now, the uh, I think this is a tremendous, you know, Joaquin Benoit because of Houston Street's presence. Right now, Axford, Benoit, and Varis are 29, 30, 31 on that closer list. But John Axford's being drafted after the Rockies closers. He's being drafted after Drew Smiley. He's being drafted after Fernando Rodney. I like Axford a lot if his ADP is going to stay down around 275. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think it's a great thing. And you know, one of the the side things that came out of my research for um, 
an article I did last week about arbitration and Jason Hayward was that uh, saves are overvalued in arbitration. And if there's any team that uh, would change the way that they they run their major league team uh, based on arbitration costs, I do believe it's the Indians. They're uh, a penny pincher team. They're, uh, they don't have much of a budget, and they're forward thinking, and they they're they're always looking at the numbers. So um, if uh, if there's a reason that Vinny Pistano and Cody Allen uh, don't ever close for the Indians. It's because they uh, are much cheaper if they don't. Um, and I think you can you can get a John Axford to come in on five million dollars, and that's much better than Cody Allen having a you know Kimbrel type season and getting a ten million dollar award. Yeah, same uh, thing with Jake McGee in the race. I think that's probably true of some of the guys that we look around and and do little on the on the uh, on the A's. Uh, I think that you're going to you see because of the, the weird thing that happens because of arbitration uh, overvaluing young young saves is that, that some of the cheaper teams are the ones spending so much money on um, on relievers. Oh, look at Atlanta. I mean, they're going to they're going to have arbitration with Craig Kimball, whose agent filed a nine point one million dollar claim against six six point six five, I think. Uh, about a $300,000 raise from what Papelbon got five years ago as the best closer in the game at the time. So, yeah, this certainly behooves teams to control those things. That's why I've said along, uh, looking at Jake McGee, it's one of the reasons why he doesn't have those uh, save opportunities with the raise. Despite having the stuff, you know, it behooves them to control the cause. Same thing with Doolittle, two guys I really like a lot for what they're able to do and come in and just live on that fastball the way they do. But there's definitely it definitely benefits the teams to not, do those guys, but I really like the axe for him. I think again, with his ADP right around 275, uh, he just went in the draft that I have. He went 215. He went after Henderson. He went after Fernando Rodney um, here in the 15th round. But I, I like this guy a lot for 2014. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I've, I've got him. Uh, and, uh, and I, I actually have him in a dynasty league where I just, he was like going to be a true, a cut for me for sure. Um, and then uh, he turned into an asset. So I'm pretty happy about that right now. Always works out well. I'm hoping Fernando Roddy does not sign with the Mariners because I've got Danny Farquhar, a guy that I like a lot. And frankly, I don't understand why the Mariners are being tied to any rumors uh, with Fernando Roddy because they already have a better guy uh, in Farquhar. Speaking of the Mariners, next uh, episode will be about the Mariners and the Marlins. So if you do have any questions about those two players that you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and let us know and we'll get to them. Final thoughts for the listeners. Uh, no, just thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being patient with us and uh, on Colette's uh, throat and uh, general uh, nose area. General and, malaise. Uh, yeah, we'll be. Uh, we'll hopefully be back tomorrow again to do, to the next two teams. Sounds good.